0: Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here, welcome to a special historical edition of Farm Equipment's podcast series, Our Dealer Story. In this episode, Lester Media owners Frank and Mike Lester share a first ever From the truck recording. Their subject was the 88-year-old Paul Wallum, a retired international harvester exec and later IH dealer in Illinois and Wisconsin. The Lesters took the 88-year-old Wallum on a drive down memory lane and a journey to Case IH headquarters in Racine for his first trip there in 33 years. Wallum ran two dealerships, Wallum International and Central Sands International in Illinois and Wisconsin, for 17 years, exiting the business within a couple of years of the industry-changing Case and IH merger. If Paul's name is familiar to you, it may be because of his book, The Breakup, What Really Happened, that was published in May 2019 and is now in its third printing. This story has gone viral on the Farm Equipment website since our editors posted initial coverage online in August 2019. You can find the historical collection online at www.farmequipment.com ihbreakup. Before we start today's conversation with Paul Wall, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for more than 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks to HBS for making this podcast series possible. We'll jump into their conversation, recorded in Frank's Grand Cherokee, as Paul retraces his past and what led him to leave a high-ranking major line OEM career to be a dealer principal. Here's our special edition of Our Dealer Story, Wallum International and Central Sands International.
1: We're in the, in the car today, just left our Brookfield, Wisconsin offices, heading down to Racine. And uh, got a special project here today. We have Paul Wallum with us, and in the car in the Jeep heading toward Racine is, is myself, Mike Lessiter, and Frank Lessiter, the founder of Lessiter Media. Thanks for joining us here today, gentlemen. Appreciate this. this is going to be a fun and, and interesting story of our. Our Dealer Story podcast. Paul, I understand that we all shared an address in Mount Prospect, Illinois.
2: Oh yes, uh, we were there for four years when I was traveling worldwide. Um, we lived in 917 South Nevada.
3: We were up yep. by the Palwaukee Airport. It had been Prospect Heights and then got uh, taken in by Mount
2: Prospect.
1: I had worked at the Golf and Wolf Circle for 12 years down there, if you remember the,
2: uh, yes. the roundabout there. Yes. Yeah, this is a walking memory time.
1: It's important to get the stuff understood and documented.
2: Yeah, I I certainly agree. Um, Things get lost if they're not recorded in history and uh, the impact for history.
1: First, uh, tell us about your growing up, where it was, what formed you in your early years and and ended up taking a look at this business that you went into.
2: Yeah, born and raised on a dairy farm in Illinois. In high school, I worked in the afternoons after school as a, a gopher, really, an apprentice mechanic at the dealership, IH dealership. And then in one summer in college, they put me on the road selling for the dealership. That led me to get a, a internship with the International Harvester District Office at, during college. Uh, and then that started 13 years with the company itself.
1: You were raised on a dairy farm. This is something the two of
3: you have in common as well. All right milking cows lugging hay bales is what made me a magazine editor
2: and one of my big desires it was to do anything except stay on the farm with the dairy cows <laughs> so, so what town did you grow up in uh, four miles outside of Ransom, Illinois, okay. which is near Streeter, right near Marseilles.
1: What did you study at the University of Illinois?
2: Uh, oh, at that time, we had College of Agriculture had a program called Agricultural Mechanization, a study of, of a branch off of ag engineering, studying machinery only. It's my regret that the university had given up that program, even though uh, Iowa and Ohio universities have continued them.
3: Well, you were smarter than I was. I was a dairy science major at Michigan State, and it took me to my junior year to realize I didn't want to go home and milk cows. <laughs> I didn't want to self-feed to dairymen. I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> I grew up on a dairy farm in the, in the 50s, and our two big, two tractors we used then were a Ford Jubilee, 1953, but we had a Super H. And this was in, 53, 54, they didn't make those Super H's for too long. but Small number. Yeah, mm-hmm. but my my brother-in-law in Michigan still has that tractor and still uses that That's Super easy, really. H.
2: That's a collector's item because yeah. there's not many of them. Right.
3: Well, I think Max Armstrong, uh,
1: yes. radio guy, has got one. Yep. Paul's a good friend of Orion.
3: I don't know if you realize no, that or not. We go all the way back to
2: 1959.
3: There's another guy that grew up on a dairy farm and yep. got away from
2: us. Yeah, we've done a lot of business together. We've been good friends for a long, long time.
3: So this uh, high
1: school apprenticeship helped seal your your interest career-wise.
2: I think uh, probably our Streeter High School was a little ahead of the time. They had a program juniors and seniors could leave class, at, leave the high school at one o'clock if they had a um, internship, so to speak. So that's what the dealership gave me. So I'd go out there at one o'clock to the rest of the afternoon, help the mechanics do whatever they wanted to. And my exposure to the red equipment pretty well started me to thinking, this is what I want to always do. A very, very
1: successful program then. That yes, impression. it was. You had said Melvin had become a, a company store,
2: correct? Yes, Chuck Melvin sold out to International Harvester. This was early on when they started installing company stores and buying out dealerships.
1: Stoller has a store down there, this Stoller become... now has
2: the Streeter store, yeah. Clark Stoller, a, really a fine operator, uh, has, I think, six stores. He has Ottawa, where I was born, and Streeter, where I we went to high school. He has those two stores along with his other ones.
1: You have a, a very interesting background with IH can you kind of walk us through that path when you joined IH and in the various roles and responsibilities over I think was 13 years?
2: Yes uh, the first summer was um, installing fixed packages on elevators that was a summer program between my junior and senior year then in my senior year I went uh, full-time with the company after I graduated and went until I went to the army for two years came back with company started out as uh, assistant blockman then a zone manager or blockman in Wisconsin supervisor of product knowledge in Madison IH then to sales manager in Peoria, Illinois then into Chicago as um, product knowledge nationally for sales supervisor, for TD6 crawlers, and for cub cadets, and um, then went from there into a general management training program where for a year, 20 of us spent time in individually in different locations throughout throughout the company. Might have been truck, might have been parts and service, trying to learn everything about the company. During that time, then I was offered uh, the job as farm equipment export manager worldwide which I took and traveled to about 52 countries I guess until I decided to resign and buy my own dealership.
1: You were doing a big stint in Europe at that time right? Uh,
2: Living in Mount Prospect but traveling in and out of the country all constantly Uh, in those days we didn't come home weekends I'd be gone four weeks at a time which was one of the reasons i end up quitting because my kids were 11 and 7 and i sort of became a stranger but yeah i had four offices uh, that worked for me lebanon uh beirut and lebanon brussels in belgium lima and peru and in uh, Singapore, and I traveled between those four offices constantly.
1: The term uh, block man before, and, and Paul mentioned it, that's a term we don't hear much about today. Tell us what that meant back in the day.
3: Paul may correct me, on, but it was kind of the district manager, it was the territory manager. But that's they right. called them black men. And I don't know if you know this or not, but I came to Milwaukee in 67 uh, and edited the Massey Ferguson magazine for three and a half years. And they, at that time they had maybe six or seven company stores. And uh, I think they had built theirs. They were trying to use them as uh, to show other dealers how they ought to upgrade their dealerships. And uh, Massey in those days had some really pathetic dealerships. It would be like a garage or a shed. And, some gas station someplace, but they had some good dealers, but they had some that weren't so hot either. In fact, one time I even interviewed for a job at International Harvester on the magazine.
2: I'll be darned. I visited the Massey Ferguson School uh, in England Mm -hmm. uh, because we were patterning our, we're trying to improve our school in Tifton, Georgia and use the Massey School as a pattern. They had a very good training school in England.
1: So I didn't know that you had uh, looked at a job at International Harvester. Did you ever find out if Paul was the one who blackballed you? <laughs> no, I didn't.
3: I, he was out of the country when I interviewed.
1: <laughs> you had said, maybe on the phone to me, Paul, that things you liked most was calling on dealers in your in your career.
2: I thought about that a lot when I was writing the book. I got to thinking back about the different jobs and I had, Harvester had given me a huge opportunity. I was. I had the opportunity to be, I was the youngest sales manager in the country for Louisville and Melrose Park Products and uh, youngest export manager. And that was simply because they were awfully good to me. Uh, But then I started thinking back in the loss of being home at night and uh, thinking about all the dealers and they had, they were home every night and they chose who they hired, who worked for them. And I got thinking back, I had 21 dealers in Wisconsin on my zone or block um, in the late 50s. And um, I just admired them a lot. Decided then I wanted to go be a dealer as a result of my experience with those dealers. So yeah, I thought that zone manager job, not the most interesting, but one of the best jobs that I had.
1: When we were in the office talking about in in Michigan, uh, you know, a, a guy with a operating a dealership out of his house and I heard last week one of the very famous dealership in Kansas started out of the back back end of a bakery that was a John Deere dealership
2: yeah one of my dealers in uh, in Reeseville for Wisconsin I remember and it was like Ashapun was another Johnson Creek was another they typically had stocked one tractor and one chopper and uh, maybe a blower elevator and that was about it and uh, Those are the dealers that, um, a lot of those dealers that made Harvester what it was.
1: I remember Charlie Goss from John Deere had had told a story about how uh, they were setting up anyone they could, town who may have been uh, selling saddles and just taking any representation that they could at one time. And that that world has really changed, hasn't it?
2: Uh, Yes, (laughs) I do remember something that we laughed about in later years in Beaver Dam when I lived there. Uh, the next door neighbor was Wes Peterson, who was the John Deere blockman, and we used to laugh in the morning because we all want, we always wanted to be the first one out of the driveway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always leave about seven fifteen, and then one of us get out of there first.
1: So you would, in your early days as a company rep, you had some baptism in uh, firefighting on one of the one of the products.
2: Oh, as the, far as failures, yeah. The, oh my, uh, the eight sixteen more conditioner was. Uh, I'd call it sort of a disaster because it just it was breaking down all the time and the poor dealers were unhappy. And then the 560 failure started to occur when the uh, bearings started to give up final drives. Those things hurt the company a great deal. It was simply a product of not enough testing. The products were excellent, but they hadn't, for example, they did the back end of the 560 and then after that design was completed, then they put a larger engine in front of it, horsepower-wise. If they had tested it, they would have found that failure. Those are the things that hurt the company back in those years.
1: Kind of leading up to the decision to go on your own in five weeks in Europe and the decision to, which probably surprised IH. I, I, it
2: I surprised I, my wife because for six, we were scheduled to move to England, to London July 1st of uh, 68, and uh, she had the, co- the company had given her re- debriefings constantly about what it would be like to live in Europe. But after five weeks, I was coming back, huh, coming back out of Paris on the way home, and I decided this is a crazy thing. Um, everybody in England was sending their the Americans, were sending their kids home back to high school here in the States so they wouldn't have an accent. <laughs> amongst other things. And I thought, I do not want to be separated from my kids while they're in high school. And so um, it was a great opportunity. I would have been assistant managing director for IH Great Britain, but I got home and told Brooks McCormick I was going to retire, resign. He was very good about that.
1: What happened next at that point? How, you you came home and searched for the dealership? Or? Uh, yes,
2: uh, there were dealerships, um, well, the big, reason i could even consider it because we had no money at that point was the international harvester co-dealer program where they would let you get in very little money and then they would be really the the managing partner it worked well that's how we were able to afford to buy the dealership
1: that was Belvedere. belvedere
2: illinois yes it was a dealership that was uh failing and the company wanted that location so they encouraged me to um become a co-dealer, which I did.
1: How big of a business was it that when you walked in and, and uh, took it that was, over? It'd
2: been there, there have been dealerships in Belvedere for a good number of years. Uh, Deer was strong, stronger than IH there. My next door neighbor, Joe Poulter, was a strong dealer. Uh, our dealership that I bought out had, was having problems, but they were also a truck dealer. So between trucks and farm equipment, we did, we were able to do a lot of business. We were. At one year, I know we were second largest in the state of Illinois. One year we were the largest dealer in parts uh, sales, but that was over a 17 year period. Hmm. The truck business was very helpful to get us through the bad years.
1: Was it a pure IH store? I was
2: almost entirely IH. I had too many friends and too much involvement with Harvester, plus they were a co-dealer, to take on any short lines whatsoever. And uh, which, so we were just straight I
1: would it remain that way um, in Belvedere through the till the end
2: uh, most of it because the uh, Stan Lancaster was my mentor through the years and he was running the farm equipment business uh, came back to run it a second time and then Irvall came in to who ultimately sold it to Tenneco finally I ended up only going into stagger tractors as a result, again, of vol's friendship. And that's all I guess I ever had for our short lines other than the International Harvester with Steiger.
1: Tell us about the d- decision to put the second location in and, and when that occurred. And
2: I s- had a chance to sell a center pivot to a friend uh, who had a very sandy farm in Belvedere. We somehow end up with Zematic, And then Zematic wanted me to consider putting a dealership in Wisconsin because it was a farm that wanted, for the first time, to farm 2,100 acres of raw land that had never been farmed, and they were going to buy 18 center pivots. So I took the dealership up there, rented a gas station for an office, and we then sold that 18 center pivot project. And at the same time, Harvester wanted the dealership there. So they gave me the dealership and we did both and for quite a number of years till from 79 till uh, 87.
3: So do you think uh, today it makes sense for a farm equipment dealership to take on an irrigation line or not?
2: If he's got enough gumption to avoid trade-ins, Yes, I do because it was very complimentary. The heavy service in the summertime was when we had the least project, least pressure for farm equipment service, and um, we did. We set them up in the wintertime when that was a quiet time, so they complemented the farm equipment business. But the minute you started taking used irrigation equipment, you were in big trouble because it would. <laughs> time you kind of tore it down and set it up again and repaired it it was not it was a great loser yeah
3: well you up in the central sands of wisconsin when we go up there you seem to see a lot of older irrigation systems that are just parked on the sidelines
2: yep and, they, they and don't, that's why you don't dare take them as a dealer right as a trade-in the improvements in the uh, efficiency of the center pivots are great through the years the better usage of the water, the application, all of the improvements have have made the older ones worthless.
3: Well, it's gonna get even more important because we got some areas that are hurting for water and uh, the future of agriculture is gonna be water.
1: So you had had a a bunch of the international visitors. Tell us about how many how many international folks came through your place over the years?
2: We were close to Chicago. We were only 60 miles. <clears throat> and uh, with my background with the company and with export, a lot of the uh, folks that we come in from foreign countries, the company would s- schedule to come out and visit us. Um, I guess we had visitors from over 20, maybe 24, 25 countries during those years. Some large delegations from China uh, for one t- at one time but uh, it was fun uh, our employees gained a lot from visiting with them hearing about their experiences most of them were were farming but some were dealers it was a good experience for our dealership
1: you had some stories that it, it raised some eyebrows about visitors coming into the country right oh yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah the fbi story a uh, group from china i think it was china or russia cambridge Rich came in and the FBI office called me when they saw the piece in the paper wanted to come out and ask me what they had talked about and that they did come out and talk to me and uh, hey we were talking about agriculture and there was not much secret going on about anything but agriculture
3: well we we live in Milwaukee and in the early days uh, the Russian tractors what Belarus yes Milwaukee was their headquarters for the United States and we have some friends in our suburb who were FBI agents, and they kept a pretty close eye on any of these technicians that came in from Russia to a bit. work on these tractors. In fact, we had one. We have one friend who's retired now from the FBI. He spent his total time dealing with Russian affairs in wow. Milwaukee.
2: Wow, <laughs> Belarus. This brings up another story, Mike, that I, I haven't thought about for many years. I had two representatives in uh, the continent of Africa. Uh, There were, well, they they called on the distributors for us. And uh, one of them was quite adept. He had been uh, involved with Harvester for 10 years before I uh, joined and he worked for me. And then out of the blue, he disappeared. And I got no correspondence. I talked to our own export people and they said, well, you'll need to talk to some other folks in the company. Turned out that, as it all turned out, he had been working as a Iron Curtain spy. Really? And he was a good guy, I liked him. He was American, but he'd been turned, and uh, then he was never seen or heard of again.
3: Well, sometime in the, I think in the 80s, so I had some visitors in the office of farmers from Zimbabwe, and then, revolts took place and they told about burning all these farms and murdering people. You always wondered whatever happened yeah. to these people. And it would actually been in our office, I'd met them.
1: Hmm. What were your proudest moments as a dealer?
2: I think probably the first one was um, the Excel program that Harvester created back in the 70s, um, where dealers meeting a whole batch of standards became an accredited Excel dealer. I just believed in the program very strongly, and we were the first one in Illinois, and our employees were all recognized by the company as being uh, Excel employees. That's probably a highlight of the years with the dealership.
1: Very challenging standard to meet. I very think.
2: much so, yeah. It was, it was, they were good standards, I thought.
1: What do, what do you remember about what you had to do to uh, meet that level?
2: service equipment for example uh, tool tooling that we had computerization that we had uh, in the dealership sales standards our turnover time things that i'm thinking back that probably helped to perpetuate the dealerships and it was a strong program for harvester it was the pro the the dealerships were doing better in those later year 70s than the company was it's where harvester fell short too they did not start the improvement packages quick enough and there there were different things going wrong so they fixed one thing and something else would go wrong and that was such a end result of improper and not enough testing field testing again top management which I said in the book in numerous places, and everybody I talked to agreed with me. The top managing folks were not doing their job, and the engineering center was doing a wonderful job.
1: Paul, what would have been your, your best year as an equipment dealer? What, what year in?
2: 1979.
1: Tell, tell us what life was like as a dealer in 79.
2: It was, uh, it was just an awesome year because the axial flow was new. Um, we sold, I know we sold more Axial Flow combines than any dealer in Illinois. We sold 12 in the month of October alone. That was an exciting time. Of course, then came along the strike right in December of that same year, and then everything went from roses to down the tube for a tough, tough coming year with no parts flow. And then the company started having all kinds of problems in 80. And, obviously kept on having problems. In
1: 79, we didn't know what was coming next in the general economy.
2: Everything looked good. I mean, everything just looked great. We were so busy with everything, parts, service, sales. We, could, we couldn't deliver stuff fast enough.
1: Do you feel like had that strike not happened at that particular time, or was there some other variable that had it not happened, the IH would have had a better shot?
2: Well, the strike was one contributing factor, but more than that was the grain embargo that Carter imposed in 1980, the incredible increase in interest rates where they were in the mid-80s, early 81, 82, we were paying 22% interest on unsold equipment. I mentioned selling a dozen combines in October of 79. When I was writing the book, I started digging through old records. We only sold three new combines from 1980 till 1986 when I sold out. Mm. Three in all of those years. Uh, The interest rates, the farm economy, the grain embargo and the strike, all of them helped to destroy us.
1: General economy, grain embargo, that affected all the manufacturers, right? Absolutely, yeah. Maybe there wasn't one thing, but if you think there could be a do-over would
2: it have made any difference? Well, there was one, one place I was just thinking a moment ago. We did not need new inventory, and yet McArdle uh, pushed the factories to keep building during the six, five month strike equipment that we didn't need because the market had all started drying up in the early eighty. And so then the company, in order to get rid of that inventory, because they couldn't, they, they were in trouble already financially at that point. They pushed the inventory to the dealers with all kinds of great programs. We ultimately ended up having the equipment that was built in the seventy nine eighty winter time four years later and paying interest on it. Because wow. equipment that we shouldn't have ever had equipment that the harvester company shouldn't have built during the strike. I looked up one cost, we were paying uh, a nineteen eighty four I think it was 195000 in interest that year alone, wow. with 22% interest rates on our two stores.
3: We bought a magazine in 1981. And I looked back at the contract, and the contract, it was a variable rate interest, but the maximum they could charge was 14%, which you thought was outrageous. That saved us because interest <laughs> rates <laughs> went to Good Lord, 22 to 24%. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, to,
1: to characterize what that time was like for people of my age or, or, or younger who wouldn't, maybe don't remember it as well, what would have been the, the darkest chapter running a dealership in your time and, and tell us what what the the real day-to- day was like at that point?
2: Uh, annually, of course, the interest was killing us. Day to day was once a week, we'd go and pick up the bankruptcy filings, and my secretary <laughs> treasurer would bring it in on Thursdays, and we were at a point where we were losing about ten to fifteen thousand a month on bankruptcies of farmers that had open accounts with us and in the mainly in the service department, and were filing bankruptcy. So every, in fact, there was a point there where my secretary treasurer, I, one, I remember one particular week, we've both laughed about it since, where I said, where's the bankruptcy filings? It's Thursday night. He said, I didn't want to show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, Ron, what is it? Well, we had lost, uh, I think 14 to 15,000 in uh, accounts receivable right that week alone. Wow. And those were nights, well, we had a dealer meeting uh, in Decatur about that period of time. And somebody at lunch, the dealer, one of the dealers at lunch said, I always wake up at three o'clock worrying. And somebody else said, so do I. And I made the comment, we might as well have dealer meetings from now on at 3 a.m. because we're all awake. <laughs>
1: yeah. So the, the when those bankruptcies, the period where those were really coming in, I was, would this have been 83, 84? What, what time would that have? I th-
2: I'm thinking starting mainly in 84, and then really accelerating in '85, um, maybe '82 through '85. I'm not sure, but they were significant. And I had farmers coming in, and when they closed the door to of my office, I knew what was going on. Uh, one one of a, a good friend, a dairy farmer, he came in, shut the door, and started crying. And he said, "I'm this is going to cost you, but I'm filing bankruptcy." And he had about four or five thousand in a, in shop bills that unpaid. So those were, those were nasty times.
1: And you had how many, how many employees, families?
2: Uh, we had 29 employees then. at the peak. And during those years, I was trying desperately to figure out ways to, to uh, lower the pain level and the cost. But service was the whole key. We were living on service, and that was my biggest department. I think we had 17 in, in the service department. We really couldn't get rid of employees without cutting our own throat. Um, and, and I hated to let them go, because the ones who had farm equipment experience, they didn't have any jobs to look forward to anywhere else either. It was tough times for everybody.
1: Your wife, Joan, and the kids, were they involved in the business at that point?
2: At that point, oh yes, my son had, uh, he, had he was his own manager with the International Harvester in Iowa, uh, right out of college. We went to Northern Illinois University. Then he came with me in 81, and so he was living through this with me right up till the time we sold the stores in '86. Because the younger, my daughter, she was in high school. She was running parts uh, in the summertime, and so uh, they were, they were part of the business, but not. I have, did I, my best to keep them out of the financial stress. But Jeff knew what was going on. My oldest.
1: That is an interesting challenge. I would say, as a as a son. Um, my parents were going through a very hard time and, and I didn't realize it at the time at all until I was about a sophomore in college when my mother told me Dad, mom and dad didn't bring it home at all, which I'm sure had its challenges.
2: Yeah, it didn't help much to come home and say, oh my God, things are bad. <laughs> it just didn't, there was, there was no reason for that.
1: How did you know when it was time to, to wrap it up?
2: Oh, I started trying to sell both of them. <clears throat> And well, frankly, uh, after the merger and the announcement in November of 84, I started to lose my enthusiasm rapidly because we had a uh, case industrial store in Rockford, 15 miles away, and they were, had immediate access to all parts, including all my farm equipment parts. And they were selling the parts for less than we were. So I felt sort of had a, an enemy in the backyard and I started trying to sell and uh, it was there were just no buyers at that point. I finally um, ended up selling it to a family that closed it in the 10 months. They were big farmers, they were experienced farmers but they were not um, good at, at all at the dealership and 10 months later it was closed. And the other store then I sold it to my a fellow who had come in, a friend. Partner and uh, he kept it going after that for a good while.
3: I'm Jack Simlick of Precision Farming Dealer Magazine. If you want to be more successful in precision ag sales, service, and support, join us for the annual Precision Farming Dealer Summit, co located with the National No Tillage Conference.
0: Check out more information at precisionsummit.com. Now back to the story of Paul Wallum and what Paul recalls specifically as a day that will be remembered in infamy in the farm equipment business, November 26,
1: 1984. As, so you have a really interesting perspective on this as an, as an IH guy and then as a dealer, what what do you remember personally feeling the day that the news came that, that G.I. Case and IH were coming together?
2: I knew it was coming. Um at that time Orion, Samuelson, and Stan Lancaster, who had retired from running the farm equipment division, and myself were doing programs amongst we called it AgCon, short for agricultural conventions we did an AgCon program to dealer state convention uh, annual meetings. And so we all knew it was coming. So you
1: knew it was coming. It wasn't yeah. a surprise for you. you know, but... it
2: was not. Uh, we were basically charged with not talking to anybody about it, even because even though I was an independent dealer, Orion was a, was a newsman and Stan so deeply involved with the company that we talked to nobody about it, but it was, um, Heck of a shock, regardless.
1: And your your dealer peers, but tell us how how your fellow peers with running IH stores reacted shocked. that day. Shocked,
2: totally shocked. They remember that event as vividly as Kennedy's assassination. Many haven't said that. They said two things we remember, uh, maybe three: Kennedy's assassination, the uh, sale of. Farm Equipment Division, and uh, September 11th in New York in 2001. Those three kept coming up together. So yeah, it was the impact. They didn't know whether they are gonna have a business or not, neither did their did their customers.
1: So to put this in today's context, if you were to think of two ag manufacturers getting together that would have had the same kind of impact that we saw in the, in the mid-80s, mid what comes to mind? What two, manif- for instance, would this be like John Deere and AgCode getting together? Would
2: it, well, give us I, a... There was, there was obviously, there was discussion about the fact that Oliver and Case could possibly have gone together in the past. Everybody was getting in trouble financially. Deere was above it because they had not gotten trouble financially like the rest of us. So I think that um, most of the companies, Alice and... Right. We're in trouble and ready to find a way out.
1: So IH, in, in case IH, what numbers would they have been in hierarchy back then? One? In,
2: in, in uh, volume? Yeah. Oh, I would say, because deer was number one, a harvester, I think, was still number two. Boy, see, Agco really hadn't come about yet. I'm not sure where it would go down from there yeah. that point. If you took Alice and Oliver and White and uh, tied them together, maybe, and Case, you'd have a significant uh, player, probably. Right. And, of course, the biggest player that out of the merger came was Case and IH. And as it turned out, and I have a lot of folks saying, the last five words in your book were well-chosen, and I said it all turned out well. It did, because to this day, Um, would case or IH, either one exist if they hadn't gone together at that point.
1: If we were looking at it in today's terms, would it be, let's say, you guys tell me if I'm off base with this, like New Holland and Kubota, or?
2: Uh, Probably not as much as the fact that the major players, uh, and particularly Harvester, which is a 150-year-old company, and when my wife heard what was happening, she said, "The company's too old; they can't fail." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, I think they did.
1: So I was in high school when Case and IH merged, and uh, I got to admit that you know, because in my whole professional career, it's it's been one company. Mm-hmm. What you what you describe as today's understanding of IH's place and
2: in, in oh, as the, part the history. of the youngsters. Uh, let's see, eighty. 16 to 19, 35 years ago, 35 year old farmers today weren't yet born when that merger occurred. Mm-hmm. So to them, there is only one red company, and that's case IH and Deer as the two major players. Uh, most of the youngsters don't know anything about IH history except the ones who have founded grew up in families where the harvester was involved
1: the opportunity to speak to someone of my generation and younger about how important IH was or the innovative and engineering enhancement what 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 comes to mind from from you two guys
2: well the, without the without harvester the, the air planter would not have come about which is today the typical way of seed placement the cyclo the rotary combine uh, may have never come about we, because, or certainly wouldn't have come about in the 70s because of Hinsdale's engineering. Um, Hydrostatic transmissions were well advanced by harvester as opposed to anybody else. These things would have um, not come about as soon or at all in the industry, maybe. Those are the first things I think of.
3: What's interesting on planners and what you said about the Planter. And in those days, there were two or three big innovations on planters. Case had one, or RIH had one, and Deere had one, but they came out from farmers dreaming up the ideas that start Very that. true.
2: Did you, I don't know if you noticed, Mike, on that letter I gave you, uh, the two of the age groups that I interviewed regarding change, big changes in agriculture named Kinsey, Steiger, Dietrich. Combined, their innovations were some of the biggest events in the d- development of change in harvest in agriculture.
3: When you were in the export market, was IH bigger worldwide than deer or not?
2: Yes, but not in Massey. Massey was bigger.
3: Okay, oh, that right. It was Massey,
2: IH, and deer, because okay. IH was all the way back to Cyrus McCormick's interest in getting away from the taxation, his development in Russia and Ukraine and Europe. Uh, developing factories, Harvester did. And so that's why they were so early on in leadership uh, mm-hmm. in with the rest of the world. And I did forget to mention the, the significance of Harvester, many people say row crop tractor, the first row crop tractor, the F-20, and it was a significant change in farming.
3: you talked about the problem they had with mowers. And it reminds me of when we start, got, when I started following no-till in uh, 1972, and we, and we looked at planters that were on the market and Case had a no-till planter that they were promoting and six months later, it was off the market. And I said, well, what happened? They said, it doesn't work. We're not gonna promote it as a, as
2: a no-till planter. They were that's smart what, enough right. to <laughs> stop it. <laughs> <laughs> See, it is, that's what makes it hard for companies to stay out of trouble. American manufacturers when they do overseas business. Like uh-huh. you
1: could rewind a, a decision to either do something or to have not to d- done something? What what might you have played a do-over card on within your dealership days?
2: Had enough foresight to realize the market was going to go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of two million dollars of inventory before it became unsaleable. I still remember selling two two plus twos to two of my friends who were farming. Both of them, I lost 5000 on one of them and 6500 on the other one. I'll still remember those exactly. Those two guys are still friends and they still don't know what kind of a deal they got. I had to get off them underneath the interest. And so I was taking five, 6000 bucks lost just to get them off the yard. We're three years old, sitting there getting dull red. Yeah. It was, you did anything to try to get off. And the worst thing, well, one more thing, I was the bank director at the Belvedere Bank, and the control of the currency's rule was if you borrowed from the bank, you paid 1% more interest than anybody else. Well, 22% interest plus 1 was 23 It was killing us. It did kill us.
3: When times were good, did you make more profit off used uh, equipment or new?
2: We did a great amount of reworking and guaranteeing. I had a big shop, a big part of our income was shop. So in the wintertime, we'd take a truck, we'd store it from one end to the other, same way with tractors.
1: Any, any memories of a dealer who really did something different, took on something really strange, or whatever it took to survive the 80s that we could learn, learn some lesson from today?
2: A Couple of the dealers I recall, big dealers, said, no, we don't wanna be an Excel dealer. We're not gonna add those costs. We can't afford it. We don't want computers. And they survived because they did, they had a lower cost level when all, everything went to heck and the rest of us did. That was a- uh,
1: That was significant-
2: Counterproductive. I thought at the time, I oh, thought, boy, we ought to be. Turned out they were right, even though they didn't know what was coming any more than we did. They just refused that high upper, that higher cost level i think leasing and rental is what more than anything else allowed us to be as big as we were and as profitable up until the bad years because mm-hmm. it just worked like a charm
1: so would you would, would you have been one of the leaders at that time looking in that direction oh yeah there seen? was
2: nobody else dealers thought i was nuts yeah The other surrounding dealers thought i was nuts well the nuts before i'll be nuts again
1: yeah. why, why did they why did they think that you were nuts uh, for doing that
2: they thought we was going to take away new sales. But what we do, let's say we take the tractors, because we were fortunate, Green Giant was in Belvedere. We'd lease to them 15 tractors. They would put on $200 on them. We'd bring them in, and I had one man did nothing but spend all of his time restoring those to new to looking like new again, a detailer. And he would paint the tires, he would do everything to make them look new again. We'd put them on lock and fall. We had received about three, four thousand bucks out of them. We could beat everybody to pieces on a 200 hour tractor. There weren't any other 200 hour used tractors. Mm-hmm. And same way with the trucks. I mean, the grain trucks, we, we were the biggest grain truck dealer in the Midwest, but we would do 20 of them a year, rent them all over the place and then sell them in the fall. Never carry them a second year. Mm-hmm. That was our most profitable thing. Yeah. It's one of the few things we did right.
1: So why was that? Why would that have uh, been considered such a foreign concept back in that time?
2: I think that people overlooked the fact that if you completely restored them to look like new again, they you could get at any price you wanted. So many of them, a re- or they would look at their demonstrators, they'd bring back in put out in the lot. They'd sit there forever because they were dirty. The difference was making them look brand new. Mm-hmm. So it looked like it was brand new. So yeah. how'd you
3: finance these leased
2: equipment? Well oh, that was Harvester Credit. Okay. Yeah we could do that through Harvester Credit. They were perfectly on board with it.
1: So the, the the financing instruments and all that, that wasn't that complicated to figure out. It was just that you figured out. Not a bit. Make them, make them look like new and get them Just get them moved right away, 200 hours. We
2: have people who every year rented a combine. Every single year. Year after year. And that got the point to say, when are you going to get the wooden chain combine? Because they, everybody knew Leroy was very good with machinery mm-hmm. and he always leased a, com- rented a combine from me. So in the wintertime people wanted to buy the wooden chain combine. Or he was known as a very careful mm-hmm. machine yeah. operator. Right. And other machines, same way, they, the machine had a reputation.
3: That's mm-hmm. the way it is with some dealers in the Palouse. They know who's going to be the second and third owner of these combines.
2: Yeah.
1: And you want to be you want to get the boot and shame. you know that guy took care of it like it was a baby and it's yep yeah. okay I get some it.
2: people don't have it in their heart to abuse machinery some people abuse everything including their own
3: <laughs> but some, some of these guys in the palouse they knew that bill smith bought this combine this year and every year they're going to get that bill smith combine mm-hmm. because they know that guy took care of it comes back the dealer knows Who's going to buy these for three years?
2: Right. Yep. A lot of things haven't changed. The attitude. I I used to do on separate from AgCon in the time. I used to do a program for state implement dealers conventions again on the subject of uh, customer is not you. An interruption to your business. It's the reason for your business. And I used to remember the question and answer was, and people say, Hey, we can't afford to. You you talk about having a coffee pot in the showroom. And hey, we can't afford that. Look, somebody's <laughs> got to take care of it. Oh. <laughs> Duh. Yeah. I mean, it just amazed me how people had sometimes were so short sighted. Mm-hmm. You do whatever you can to make people feel at home and comfortable. <laughs> so, and a lot of people never do that. You think today's dealer. Like in
3: Beaver Dam, The guy buys a new $200,000 tractor, but he buys it from some other dealer someplace in Missouri. Is, this, is he still going to get treated as well for service and everything in yes. Beaver Dam?
2: I think dealers have finally learned that now, particularly now where <coughs> warranty work can be profitable. There were many times right. in the past when a company would screw up their warranty programs. But no, where, where service is profitable, you don't care to worry about it. And with internet, now every one of the people I get in the book, I ask them about, inter, about internet purchasing. Farmers, hey, they buy it all over the country. If they find, no doubt about it, people buy brand new cars all over the internet. They buy used cars, they do used farm equipment. So you bring it home, yeah, the dealer will service it. Some, some hold grudges, but if they do, they're not around long. And now that you have groups, group dealerships, which is a whole topic of its own, the goods and the bads of group ownership, uh, then the managers, they're not gonna worry about where you bought it.
3: And it looks to me over the years that we've had a number of innovations out of the U.S. That have gone to the world, but at the same time, it looks to me at least in some areas where Europe can be ahead
2: of us. Oh, by all means. By all means, look at how many times Europe has brought us things like the draper head that that we didn't uh, for some reason and I'm not knowledgeable at all there except I know that like the folding corn heads and the drapers they are all European and you'd think that we would have designed those because we have the big acreage yeah. but they're the ones that designed them Uh, though there's been a great amount of I think it's because the Europeans have always had this struggle with uh, more they don't have this the size of operations, so they have to try to come up with clever ideas, more than we do, many times.
1: Observation of, I've, I've been to Agritech Canal three times in the Italian shows, and th- those manufacturers are so dependent on the export business. There's not enough, not enough uh, ag That's in right. their own economies. They haven't to, got
2: the farmers, so they have to ship it somewhere.
1: Maybe by nature it makes them more... More reliant on innovation, perhaps. Yes, very
3: true. Well, they never they, they never saw big acreage fields in Europe until the Berlin Wall came down. And then the, the Eastern Germans had the huge operations. They were true. true. We, had a, we had a speaker at our um, no-till conference early on from Southern Illinois, and he had a project going in Belarus. And he was going over and he was selling these people on no-till in in Belarus and um, they weren't they weren't catching on well they caught on but they weren't doing it and these were when they still had the collective farms and he finally finally one of the managers of the collective farm said took him aside and said look here's the problem he says I can I can do no-till it will work for us but what the hell am I gonna do with 120 other people still working on this collective farm? Keep the labor busy. Yeah, but once the
2: Berlin Wall came down, that changed. You saw the electric tractor at Hanover. We had a lot of discussion about that, or uh, coffee shops. Uh, I've asked some of the folks I've been interviewing about the age, uh, their, their opinions about change in their age group. A lot of curiosity about electric See, electric, tra- electric aviation is coming on gangbusters. This year at Oshkosh, for the first time ever, Airbus had a display. They had a display of their own experimental electric airplane that's flown 100 flights, eight propellers. And uh, that is the future of aviation big time because you get rid of all that weight of the fuel and the weight of the heavy engines and suddenly you have efficiency that n- never heard of before. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's coming out very strong. So I'm not a bit surprised that agriculture, hell, look at across the road trucks, the electric truck pro- uh, progress is huge. Aviation, why not agriculture? Mm-hmm. Yes, agriculture.
1: Yeah. Question for you that um, on this whole autonomous tractor and autonomous vehicles, it- written something here lately about whether the majors have too much to lose to be the ones that propel this thing forward you know they've got all this capacity and production plants that build tractors and everything what's your and, and we have some evidence of the specialties coming up you know the dot automated autonomous tractor diesel powered yep. autonomous tr- what's your take on whether the
2: i think the i think they like deere and case ih will uh, maybe cut kicking and screaming but we'll have to fight to stay right up in front or get swallowed by the other one or the other ones, because uh, it's inevitable. I, I, I got so fascinated with some of these air interviews when I did folks with a dealer. Here's a guy 60 years old that says, I have no fun, sons. I don't have any kids that grew up with their thumbs. I'm fighting automation because I can't understand it. But if I don't get on board, I'm dead. So I don't know what to do. I can't afford to get out. What do you think I ought to do? I think I'm just listening here. Frustration is huge on that type of farmer that doesn't have youngsters in his family, for example. Uh, But it's coming. Mm. I mean, holy mackerel. Now what I'm seeing, well, the the cater at the Farm, Farm Progress show, Uh, The Case IH display was incredible, they had rows of seats with the new monitor, the flat screens there in the combine cabs, teaching people how to use it, one right after another. And uh, here suddenly you can be controlling your tillage tool from your combine cab and the width and the depth of your tillage tool, Uh, but boy, that's complicated. But if you either get on board or get out.
3: We did a cover on farm equipment five, six, seven years ago, a piece of artwork from Case IH that showed four or five combines in the field with no cabs on them, and a the guy in a pickup truck running
2: all four of them. I have not seen that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> there were no
3: cabs on the combine.
2: Oh. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so uh, th- this week, one of our editors, or last week, one of our editors talked to an ag engineer at Ohio State. And he says, I think the farm equipment dealer, of the future is not going to be selling iron. He's got to, It's going to be selling service.
2: Keith Weinlater, executive vice president of New Holland, retired. He now his sons do the John Deere in the dealerships where you can order parts like you order hamburgers in McDonald's now. His sons do those. Keith. I interviewed him in my book, he's a friend of Alls, who used to run the Farm Equipment Division. Keith says about the future dealership, color doesn't mean a hoot. The color of the machinery, the service and the technology that the dealer provides, there are the, there's where the winners are. Now they're also, the dealers are already telling me, some of them have are selling contracts Uh, service contracts on so that they can do all the monitoring of the equipment from the the dealership. Mm -hmm. Some of the customers are saying, this is an absolute ripoff. I'm paying Mm -hmm. you X dollars and your people never come out of the uh, shop. They don't have to. Mm -hmm. They can do everything from the the store, many things, let's put it that way. So the big hurdle is to get people to go ahead and buy those contracts. And get the service like I do with uh, with Geek Squad, on their service on Apple computers. I would I pay two hundred bucks a year. It's the best buy I've had. I call them for anything. Hey, what the hell is wrong with my laptop now? Well, let me get online. I'll show you. I don't have to leave my house. They don't have to leave theirs.
1: What, what's your take on the on the the groups that you've seen happen in this industry since your your time?
2: In general from and by all coming from these questioning calls I made the average farmer I think average combine them all together would say I miss walking in and saying hello to Charlie my dealer forever but I don't miss the fact that once a day the truck goes around all seven of the dealerships and picks up the parts I need and I have them the next morning Mm -hmm. I sort of like that
3: yeah
2: it's working Mm -hmm. the dealerships who are doing that it's working well Mm -hmm. Now, Titan, different ball game entirely, with 85 dealerships, uh, different whole different world, that is. But the typical 10, 12 ownership, or 7, like Berkey's with 17 in Illinois, Clark Stoller with 6, um, Run, or Leo with oh, okay. 5, 4, 5. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're doing it well. They're handling you, it well.
3: Why do you say Titan is different?
2: Well, because of of this, they're in all over the country. Right. And so their management for them is a whole different ballgame.
3: But from the farmer's standpoint, it shouldn't matter.
2: No, I don't think a farmer even knows. What I did encourage back when I first got out, I started a consulting program for dealers, which didn't work anywhere, didn't go anywhere. What I wanted to do was convince the dealers they should set up their own school, uh, the group dealerships in one of their conference rooms and then train their own people uh, on a regular basis. And uh, the dealer said that would be a wonderful idea as long as Case would pay for it. Case IH paid for it. Case IH said, look, uh, you guys are, we're encouraging your grouping together so that you reduce your costs. We're not gonna pay for you just like mm-hmm. that. That's why the deal never went anywhere. Yeah. I even wrote a prospectus for it. But yeah. this is so logical and it was, but it hadn't gone anywhere.
1: That's that's interesting and I want to share with you a story that I got when I was out at uh, H&R AgriPower and, and you did talk to Steve Hunt yeah. when you were working on the book and we, yeah. we talked about uh, you at dinner. Guy next to me, Ronnie Barnett, is in charge of all CFO, HR, the whole thing and he said there's only two schools where I can get a case certified mechanic. And uh, one of them is in Berkey's backyard in Illinois, and the other one is out in Titan's backyard in North Dakota. And he said, Case is always talking to us about, you need more parts sales, you need more parts sales. And Ronnie is say, saying back to him, you want more parts sales, get us more techs week. Cause we have 30 open tech positions right now. They're at 20 store uh-huh. dealer, 18 store dealership. And, and he said, maybe an article you should write is why cases are putting in more certified programs where so we can bring techs into it. And I said, well, how many is have? He said, I don't have any idea, but there's no way that Cases got enough schools for us to draw out. of." So need is the exact same thing you're talking about. I think yep. there's some question about the, who ought to be paying for it. Is that-
2: and I heard, I had breakfast with one of the salesmen for Berkey's whose grandfather was an IH dealer last week and he said i said tell me about training and he said we're getting of course again berkey's see this is a berkey store in polo Mm -hmm. we're getting plenty of service training what we don't get enough of is sales training this the the technology is flowing at us and we don't we can't handle it it's coming at us it's a fire, drinking out of a fire hose Mm -hmm. i heard that a lot yeah now obviously if you're close to a service training center it's one thing but if you're a million miles away, you got troubles with both sales of ser- and sales and service. Yeah. But I don't think the dealer sales are men, sales reps are being, treated, being trained enough, by mm. far. It's coming at them like gangbusters.
1: Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of turnover, retirements and that kind of thing, and people are getting slid into uh, positions before they're ready, it sounds yeah. like.
2: and a too. 55-year-old salesman who knows the industry for 30 years should not retire. You ought to do anything to keep him. Mm -hmm. But he's so scared of this deluge of new equipment without being trained to answer the customer, he quits.
1: Mm -hmm. Question, another question for you here. If, um, let's say, I'll just say Berkey's or h and one of these companies said, Paul, we need need to hire you to come in and, and tell us what we ought to be doing through the lens of your experience and perspective. Put together a PowerPoint and train us up on what we ought to do. What would be the five like tenants of, of running a farm equipment dealership that would be in any presentation you gave to Someone who asked for your advice. The
2: way to treat employees Treating employees. There are so many I see so many examples where people don't know how to treat employees. <coughs> All through the years I have seen that where they lose good employees don't listen to employees uh, take away important programs, benefits that aren't costing them much.
3: I think you wrote it or somebody did about the Iowa dealer who walked back to talk to every one of his service techs every day and he found out one guy was unhappy and he asked him why he was unhappy and he says this other
2: tech throws rags at me
3: and the guy fired the guy who was throwing the rags. He was not one of his top techs and he wasn't gonna lose his top tech over somebody throwing the <coughs> rags at him.
2: It's not easy being an employer, you guys know that. <coughs> Just not, but you better save the good people and get rid of the bad ones, and not keep a bad one so long that the other ones are saying, what are you wait so long for? Right, I've gone exactly. through that, I made that mistake. We have too. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> has. If it was so doggone easy, everybody would be an employer. Yeah. But the rest of them came home Friday night and forget all about it mm-hmm. till Monday. You don't.
1: remember you had said um, something that you realized about the dealer and really liked was that he was totally in control of his destiny. Could you elaborate? Yeah, that's why on I,
2: one of the reasons that I felt the zone manager was such an important job for me was I witnessed the dealers who made more money than any of us in Harvester, the good ones, and who had the freedom to be at home. And Forrest Selby at Quincy would have a new Cadillac every year, and I didn't have a soul in Harvester I knew that had new Cadillacs. And the uh, the he's got this beautiful store, and uh, he decides who he's going to, who's going to work there. And he uh, that's an impressive job being a dealer. And that's why, that's really why I finally decided if I stay with this company, and the company's been very good to me, and let's say that I move up into top management, do I want to be there? Now, hindsight, I would have been 52 years old, was 52 years old, the day the Chase IH Tentacle bought Harvester. What would have been my future if I had been a vice president? of Harvester, at that point, I would have had a very, very questionable future, being too old and too expensive for other companies to want to hire me, but they don't want me. Irv All is the best example. He engineered the Case IH Tentacle Purchase. He started the whole thing, but Jerry Green said, Irv, we can't use you because you're too expensive. Hmm. Out he went. One of my best friends, much in the book. Yeah. Urban and I talk all the time, so that's why I thought the dealership was such a great place to be. It never changed my mind. Yeah. Our kids grew up around that dealership.
3: Mm-hmm. We, we had a magazine in the 80s that went to uh, post-frame building contractors and people put up grain systems. And I remember a story we did, and it's, atti- it's Attitude, because we did a story once, there was a dealer down in southern Illinois that drove a Cadillac and he'd pull in the farmer's driveways in Cadillac. So we did a story and we asked other dealers and the guy said, man, I drive a five-year-old pickup truck. So when I bid on the building, they don't think I'm ripping them off. If I drove that Cadillac, they think I'd ripping them off. And the Cadillac guy says, baloney. I, when I drive in the driveway with my Cadillac, I want them to know, but four years from now, when they got a problem, I'll be around to exactly, fix it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So true.
2: So very, very true.
3: I remember when
1: um, I had asked you some questions about your decision to go out on your own, and I, I sense that you guys share this thing. Dad worked for Ryman Publications, very successful publisher here I in saw Milwaukee. That. Number, you were the number two guy there. Is as big of a success story in publishing as there has been in the last 50 years, probably, right? And I, and dad said if I'd stayed there any longer, it would have been very difficult for me to ever go out on my own. Yep. Because you were, you've been presented with some stock and just, you've been, you might have been handcuffed.
2: Right.
3: I've gotten fired too.
2: I was 34 when I left the company and uh, Uh, people, For years you were absolutely stupid here you give away what looks like a real good career not the career i wanted and it never was and my whole family is grateful that we didn't even though we lost a fortune in the 80s where would we have been i don't know yeah i'm not unhappy with the decision ever
1: you probably did you have some of those same feelings that if if i don't Choose to go out on my own now. It'll be yeah. It'll be too too tem- tempting to remain with the big company for very much
2: so. Yeah. Uh, because I also was told, okay, you're going to be second in line for International Harvest of Great Britain, um, and you'll if you do a decent job there, you'll run the IH Great Britain. However, be ready to travel in mainland Europe all the time, because that's where most of our business is going to. The British tractor yeah. is going all over Europe. Now, holy mackerel, this is great now. We're gonna move away, move to London, send our kids back to the States to go to school, and I'll be gone away from home, and Joan will be all by herself in London. She'd rather be all by herself in Mount Presby.
3: It's interesting, the first job I had, they put in a profit-sharing plan when I was when I was there and it was vested so you you got 20% after two years, they got 100% after five years. (laughs) I left when I think we were only one year into the uh, profit-sharing plan to go to Chicago because I figured if I waited two or three years I'm going to lose so much money I won't move. You guys share the entrepreneur. Right. We're sitting around. We were in. We were in business, and the kids were sitting around the table one night, and being an entrepreneur, which I think I am. And one of the kids says, "Dad, what if somebody came to you tomorrow and offered you twice as much money than you're making now? Would you go to work for right I said, "Nah." And one of the kids said, what if they have offered you three times or four times? And I said, well, and then Pam, my wife, says, just stop it. You wouldn't do it anyway. (laughs) You'd think about it, but you wouldn't do it. That's right.
2: (laughs) Change my way of life for money. I don't need the more money, but I want to keep my way of life. That's, Mm -hmm. I think, very true.
3: Well, we sold a magazine in 89, and I was going to work for the new company. I couldn't hack it. They weren't they weren't doing things wrong, they were just doing them different than what I was doing and I didn't like it.
2: It's fun to enjoy your job in right, your life. Right. Orion has said so many times on the air, find a job that you love doing you'll never work a day in your life. Right. And that's so true.
1: I feel I feel blessed to have found that. You know, I'm working with great people in ag?
3: Yeah. St- I mean, the- he's he was going to say, I'm working with great people in ag and my dad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> dad's definitely part of the. <laughs> I wanted to work with my dad. Initially, said, I wanted to work he with He said dad. in the <laughs> past. He said in the past. <laughs>
2: no, I, I consider it so fortunate because uh, in our financial planning world, uh, you, you bring up somebody that's really sharp, and uh, suddenly then, instead of staying with you and buying you out, they leave and take a lot of the clients with them. Here my son comes with me for the second time. We've proven we can work with each other in two different businesses, and when it comes time to for me to say, look, it's time for you to run this thing, the industry is changing too quick. I need to move on. I'm 79. Mm-hmm. And time to get, move on. Mm-hmm. And uh, We went to the broker-dealer, we went to a local accountant, had them both evaluate the business. They came up with exactly the same figure. So he bought me out and I live happily ever after and he's happy in the business. It's such a privilege to have family involved. Well, I'm sure you two would not disagree with this comment. To me, one of the major privileges of my life is to spend so much of it with my son in business. Right. Mm -hmm. We were in twice, we were together. He left, he went with Harvester, then quit to run the truck part of my dealership, then went with Sunstrand, and then came back with me 30, 20 years ago to in the financial planning office.
3: Well, most of the time we get along, and if I have a real problem with him, he gets his mother to take his side <laughs> and gang up on me.
2: Yeah, it can't all be smooth, otherwise you'd, you'd have a yes-man.
0: Thanks so much to Paul for making the trip to Wisconsin and for enduring not one, but two of the Lesterers during his mic'd-up drive to Receive. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at com. And there's more, too. If you'd like to learn more about Wallum's personal recollections of what happened, Leading up to the Case IH merger and what ensued thereafter, we've got another special and highly focused podcast for you in Paul Wallum's own words and memories. Visit farm-equipment.com slash IH podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt signing out of the Our Dealer Story podcast.